Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Nick Gibson, the lead pastor here at High Point. One of the things that we do in this podcast is highlight testimonies of our staff members so you can get to know them, know them a little bit, but also so you can benefit from hearing what God has done in their lives. Today I'm talking with Jill Reese, our communications coordinator. Hi. And Jill's been on our staff since May of 2015. And we've heard parts of her testimony in other podcasts that have already happened. We did one on insecurity and shame. And so you might want to listen to that. You'll get more on certain things. But today we're going to hear the rest of her story. So, Jill, you were born at a very young age in the state of infancy. Yes. Or as Nicole Kyle likes to say from, I think, from the office, suddenly I was awake. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember that part of my life. Um, so I will go forward a few years. Um, I, as I mentioned in my other podcast um, on insecurity uh, that I did with Nick. You um, were born to a mother. I was born to a mother. Yeah. Yeah. So I, my family, my a bit a little bit about my parents. They are. They were both um, in the church and everything when I was born. They met in high school, in the and then they were the navigators in college in college in Madison, actually. And um, so I, they were going to church and everything when I was born. And so they were like UW students yep. in a college ministry yep. who got married yep. and got jobs in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and went to a church. Mm-hmm. Where'd you, did you, where'd you, your dad went to medical school, though. Did he go yes. here or did he go somewhere I, else? In Madison, Oh, yes. okay. Mm-hmm. So he went to medical school here. Yep. Okay. So they went to undergrad and he went to med school here. Okay. And um, they lived in Eagle Heights and... No wonder he's so well educated. So okay, so <laughs> yeah, so that's, you're a baby. Then I'm you become a, baby, a toddler. Then become a toddler. Um, well, actually, at this point, we were in um, lacrosse. So after my dad graduated from med school, we moved to lacrosse, and I don't remember any of this because I was very small. But um, he was doing residency in lacrosse, and when we were in lacrosse, we, my family found out that I had leukemia. And that was around the time we were moving to Baraboo, Wisconsin, which is where all of my memories are from growing up mm-hmm. because we were there the whole time after that. Um, so that's kind of what I first remember is being sick and in hospitals and things like that. Great childhood memories. Yeah. <laughs> and so you talked about this a little bit in the other podcast. Yeah. It's a, it was a very curable kind, but you realized that you could end yeah. Like they tried to mm-hmm. explain to you what sickness and death was and Yeah, and I don't know if they explained it to me or I just picked it up. Right. Like they were freaked out. I don't really and know. And this what led it was. to you like being afraid of the dark, mm-hmm. which like went into your early teens. No twenties. Into your twenties even, yeah. right? And you didn't want to go to sleepovers. Mm-hmm. And it had a lot of very strong mm-hmm. emotional effects mm-hmm. on you, right? Yeah, a lot of fear in in falling asleep and like because of going unconscious and anyway I explain more of that yeah there's a lot of that in the insecurity and shame Mm -hmm. podcast right and then you also talk a lot about when you were 10 Mm -hmm. and your parents suddenly separated Mm -hmm. yes so I mean before that point so I had I had cancer I um, went into remission when I was five which means that they don't find they haven't they can't find any more cancer in your body and um then I mean, I had a pretty normal, like, evangelical 90s kid childhood you, you at that point. Tales. Yeah, VeggieTales, Awana, church stuff. Um, that's all I 
summer camp, I don't know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was in dance, things like that. So it was pretty normal. And then um, when I was 10, my parents uh, separated, as you mentioned, and then they got divorced when I was 12 or 13, and then my dad got remarried when I was 13. So they were separated for, like, more than two years. Yeah, uh, th- yeah, because, well, and he, my dad um, and mom got together again a few times in that time frame. Okay. So, and then separate again. and So it's kind of a... Also a difficult time. Yeah. Also something you talked about. We talked about this for yes. like 20 minutes in that other yes. podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. why I'm not going super right. into it right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, both your parents loved you. Mm-hmm. But these were like, these are some of the very memorable formative mm-hmm. events, right? Um, mm-hmm. So what's next? Well... I think out of what I want to kind of frame a lot of the next stuff that I talk about, um, that it wasn't in the other podcast, was just really showing how I've seen God's providence directly um, in response, not in response to, but I've seen how God has provided um, kind of the antidote (laughs) to what a lot of these broken things uh, that I experienced um, had in fact, I mean, I've, I've just seen God's goodness in response to those things um, in very providential ways. So I kind of want to explain, like, we, you talked a little bit like leukemia. I had a lot of fear of death and that coming out of there. But I've also seen God restore that and in, in, um, show me not to fear those things throughout my life. And then as my parents separated and got divorced, I, I saw a lot of broken relationships and just had a lot of insecurity in relationships, and so I've seen how God is. And when you grow up in a small healed. town in an evangelical church, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of embarrassment related to yes. your parents mm-hmm. living up and what that means. Mm-hmm. And so everyone on. knows, and mm-hmm. everyone has their own opinions. <laughs> and you even said some people take sides. People take in the sides, church. and their friends. Yeah, it's right. it's just it's it's rough. And 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 as a kid, no one's talking you direct to you directly about it. So you're just kind of picking all this stuff up and so yeah um and even just witnessing I think Nick you mentioned in the last podcast that um you see I mean when your parents get divorced you see that love in some extent is not like there's not evidence that it's permanent (laughs) in that when you see that you're like okay well he might that person might say they love me or they might say they love me and I know they love me but how true is that if it can just right. One of the no leave. matter no matter yeah. what your parents do for you, and I'm a little sensitive because I'm a parent of four, mm-hmm. and I know my kids are going to grow up and do testimonies, and the only thing <laughs> they're going to say about right. me are bad things, right? Um, and so, I mean, you owe so much of your growth, development, health, yeah, all these things to your parents. Yeah, and I love them, very and you much. love and them great. a lot, and they're great people. Yeah, and so ultimately, as you move into adulthood, you begin to realize not your strengths. But a lot of times you, you realize your problems. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's tons and piles of strengths that you would you would credit to your parents mm-hmm. giving you as a gift. Yes. And what you're focusing on in terms of what God does in your life in your college years and teens mm-hmm. and then into your 20s is, you know, what were the wounds that, mm-hmm. what was the brokenness that had to get healed? And what mm-hmm. was, because the, the one thing, no matter how good a parent you are, if you divorce your spouse, the unmistakable result for your children will always be a very clear example of two people who said they loved each other and they never would stop who did mm-hmm. 
And there's nothing you can do about that. You can do all kinds of things to make divorce less painful for mm-hmm. your children. Not fighting, living close mm-hmm. to each other, both being involved in their lives, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But what you cannot undo or lessen is that the main example of people in their lives who said they would love each other and never stop loving each other stopped loving each other like they said they were going to. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's even more befuddling for kids when you're nice about it. (laughs) Because you're kind of like, you're nice about it. Why can't you just stay together? Stay together, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So Um, so every child of divorce mm-hmm. has that in their life, and, and it and all of them bear it some in some way, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. So um, I think I'm gonna pick up then, like, so again, my more of this early testimony is in the insecurity podcast. I'm gonna kind of pick up when I was 12 or 13, um, and so this is after my parents are divorced. And um, my dad got remarried uh, that or when I was 13. And throughout the, all the change that was happening during that time, I really felt a, I don't think I acknowledge this, but I felt a lot of lack of control and just um, anxiety, really intense anxiety through that time. Uh, Which is normal for kids that age, junior high girls yeah. or boys. Mm-hmm. And then it was just exacerbated mm-hmm. by these things. Like, yeah. Fear of the dark, mm-hmm. fear about love, mm-hmm. things like that. And just change, I remember, like, not really loving the house my dad picked to move into, for example, and it was just really scary. It didn't really help. Not knowing my what other people fears. at church really thought about you yeah. and your family. Yeah, and and not, like, my stepmom, we didn't know her. I mean, we knew our dad introduced us to her, obviously, before he married her. But, we, you know, it's a new person in your life, and she's influential. And it's there's just a lot of change. Um, but and you've read all the fairy tales of <laughs> stepmoms. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and I, I do remember... Um, and my, were there new siblings? No. So, okay. yeah, there she was... That's a whole other bag, yeah. bag of worms there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so that did make it easier in that sense. Um, but it was a, a lot of adjustment. He moved He lived in, He moved to Sauk, um, so there was like a drive, and right. we weren't always in Baraboo anymore. And So if I remember this right, mm-hmm. where this goes is you enter this period of your life where you try to take control of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, well, this is a little bit before that. Um, my mom actually asked this couple from church who, they were the youth leaders. So this is where I see God's providence. As I look back at my story and see like, wow, I was, oh, the foundational relationship, my, relationships in my life were like crumbling around me and what I saw and all, there's all this change and I didn't feel like I had a home. But then um, I, my mom asked this couple from our church, um, their names are Jamie and Nathan. They were like in their late twenties. They were the youth, some of the youth leaders. And she was, I, I didn't know this until later, but she asked them to, um, kind of just like take me under their wing <laughs> specifically. And, uh, I remember we got dinner at their, at, um, one of their parents' houses who also went to our church and just as like an intro thing and, um, got to know each other, but they invited me into their home. I was there like every week. We watched movies. We ate pizza. They just like, they were like some of my best friends probably during. Mm-hmm. Like they were probably my best friends during that time, and they knew the situation but didn't didn't say anything about it in a weird way to me. I mean, if I needed to express something, they listened. But it, I just really see God's providence in showing me like a home during that time that was very stable for me, and 
people that really loved me. And not that my parents didn't love me, but it was this specific, I felt very um, special in a time that could make you feel like, does anyone care? Is anyone seeing what's going on here? Right. Um, and, and that, <laughs> at that age group, you're kind of looking for something that's simple. Yeah. And whatever, no matter how good your relationship with your parents are, it's always complicated. Because mm-hmm. these are people that are supporting you, but also demanding things from you mm-hmm. and trying to help you grow. And so having like a mentor couple like that, mm-hmm. that's basically there to encourage you. And that's really it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's was... just, it's so simple. Mm-hmm. And it can be really nice. Mm-hmm. So that was great. I just... I, looking back, and they were there all through my high school years. I still went to their house very frequently. Um, so I just see God's providence in that and showing me about gospel love during that time. Um, but yeah, it's still, with all the changes, I I didn't know the Lord yet at this point, personally, um, even though I was growing up in the church. So I, with all this lack of control. Meaning you found the gospel unbelievable or, or meaning oh. like you kind of vaguely believed in God. Yeah. You kind of figured this church stuff was sort of for real, but <laughs> there had been no personal transformation where it was like mm-hmm. your thing. Yeah. Got so it. it was like, I knew all about God. I could answer. I knew all the Sunday school answers. I knew a lot of Awana verses, like verses from the Bible from Awana. But yeah, it wasn't just, I didn't understand like, oh, I have a relationship with God and I talk to him and he cares about my life and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I out of this time of lack of control, I I just wanted to feel control in some way. I think, and again, this this all the stuff you kind of just like don't realize you're thinking as you're going through it, and then later you're like, what was I thinking? Anyway, so I um I was entering high school and I joined swim team and um, made a lot of friends through that too. But then I. They were just, and I was getting good grades. I was a good student. Um, I love following rules, and so I was never in trouble or anything like that. But I just felt like, um, so I felt like there were all these things that made sense in my life, but I felt really out of control. And um, I remember then in this next, or in the spring semester, I joined track. And so swimming in track, this is just like a little thing that made me think these things just for more context. But swimming, like, you bulk up, like, because you're swimming all the time, you get, gain a lot of muscle, and you eat a lot of food because you're really hungry all the time because you burn a lot of calories. And so then I went from swimming to track, and I was a distance runner. And all the distance runners are, like, these little toothpicks. And, like, I wasn't, like, overweight. But um, they're just very slender. It's, like, a different kind of you don't want a lot of excess weight because you need to go for a long time and um, on your feet. So, uh, and I remember going to track, like these all day track meets and people wouldn't even bring a lunch. And I was just like, I'm so confused. Like I love to eat like so many, so many things because I swim all day. And anyway, so um, I just remember feeling kind of like shame about that for whatever reason. And that that was just something I like held on to and was like, I need to like control this and I need to, um, this is something I can, I need, I can improve, I think is how I was thinking of it. Cause I was like, I'm already a good student. Um, I don't know. I have some friends like, okay, this is something that I can make better and control. So this okay. led to like a full fledged eating disorder. Yeah. So it led to an eating disorder that what took, I mean, yeah, it was probably about a year and a half or two years that I was, I had it, but I was um, anorexic. And so I basically, I just like was... I don't even remember much from those two years because I was so, 
like focused on I don't know I, first of all I was really out of it because I was I lost too much weight and so like I couldn't concentrate on anything I was hungry all the time anyway but that was just a really foggy period in my story <laughs> I remember you saying in the shame and insecurity podcast that you like wouldn't go places because yeah. you didn't know if people would eat and then you didn't want to be not eating and then right. people would ask questions mm-hmm. and blah, blah so it actually affected your social life and mm-hmm. I think that's important to recognize because there's a lot of there's a lot of brokennesses mm-hmm. that are essentially isolating yeah and which produce more brokenness yes mm-hmm. and eating disorders can be like this that like to to have a certain issue and then to be unwilling to confess it mm-hmm. and to open up and to have people that you know would love you leads to another separation, a lack of relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, all mm-hmm. these other things. And so it made something, it, you were trying to control something to make things better. Mm-hmm. And it actually made all kinds of yeah. things worse. Yeah. And I don't know what I thought it would make better. I have no idea what I was thinking. But um, yeah, it did. Like I mentioned that couple before that took me into their home and I was hung out with them all the time. They, like I didn't see them really during, I didn't go to their house during that time. And I didn't. The friends I had made in swim team, I didn't see anymore. Um, and that was all my fault, not their fault. Okay, uh, can I ask a question yeah. about the whole eating disorder thing? Mm-hmm. Did you did you ever enter into the point where, like, you, you would look at the mirror mm-hmm. and you didn't see a skinny person. You saw a fat person. Did you yeah. did it affect you in that on that mm-hmm. level? Yes, it did in the sense that I never – I don't know if I saw a – uh, fat person, but I saw, I didn't see a skinny person. <laughs> was, mm-hmm. Like I didn't see, it was never enough. It was like, oh, I need to, I need to, it was very obsessive. Like, um, I, I looked in the mirror all the time and I weighed myself all the time. And it was, if I did gain weight, I felt very anxious and like, so it was kind of a way that I was like trying to cope with my anxiety I think, mm-hmm. um, because if I wasn't able to, if I did gain weight or whatever, I felt very anxious about it. So, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see like a fat person in the mirror. Mm-hmm. I don't think I thought I was fat, but I didn't think I was skinny or it was, so it was still delusional. Like I didn't think mm-hmm. I was too skinny or anything like that, okay. but I still felt shame and other people seeing me and thinking I was too scared. Did it ever get to the point where, like, did you have to get treatment? Or did at some point you realize, like, you were going to have to eat something? What happened was, um, well, it was kind of a number of things that happened. I, well, I did get to a point, I still remember, I was 97 pounds. <laughs> that was the lowest I was. Um, and I did have to go into the hospital for, I, we went to this, like, event and I got super sick after because um, I was just, like, very faint. And I, I had a really intense stomach pain. I don't remember why. But it was something to do with me not taking care of my body. So I remember my dad took me to the ER in, like, the middle of the night or something. And they put me on fluids and stuff. So that was kind of, like, the low point of that. I don't remember how far this was after that. But then I, I had to meet with... I met with a nutritionist and, um, was it when you went into the ER that, when did somebody use that, a word, like a eating disorder word, like, wait, I think you're anorexic. I don't think anyone did ever. Oh, really? Which is weird. So my, my dad. They were just like, sweetie, you look hungry. Yeah. My dad was, is a doctor. So he would, I'm sure he knew what was going on, but, um, he, 
Uh, my mom, well, sorry. so my dad was more con- was more visibly concerned in that he would say, like, you need to eat something right now or, like, um, just eat it. It's fine. My mom took kind of a different approach, and she, like, took me to the store and was like, pick out anything you will eat. I don't care what it is. Like, if you want to eat it, <laughs> I'll get it. So, like, I w- it was super, like, healthy food, but she was just like, I just want you to eat something. Whereas my dad was like, put more butter on your bread and, like, eat this piece of pizza kind of approach. Um, <laughs> it's classic man one right there. <laughs> and then, um, but then what happened was I, because of my leukemia, I saw, I saw an oncologist, pedi- a pediatric oncologist for, um, until I was 18. And so I knew this doctor from, for, like, my whole life. And I went into my annual checkup, and my dad, I guess, had called ahead and let him know. <laughs> I didn't know that, of course. But mm-hmm. anyway, and he didn't Sly. ever. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't ever use the word anorexic either, this, uh, Dr. Dvorak. But he um, said, like, hey, you know, it just looks like you need to meet with a nutritionist and just gain some a little bit of weight, and, like, you'll be fine, but just... Like, we're just going to take this next step. He was, like, very, like, oh, we're just going to take this next step. You'll be fine. Okay. So then I met with a nutritionist, and then um, I don't remember how where this was in the timeline of when I, like, went to the hospital. But, um, and then I remember my swim coach, my dad had talked to her, too, and she said that if I didn't um, gain weight, that I, or she, she put me on, like, she didn't let me swim for, like, two weeks or something. And was like, you need to get better and gain some weight. And then, um, so I remember I wasn't supposed to exercise for a couple weeks. And then, because um, that was another part of it, I exercised, like, very compulsively. As, like, a 40-year-old guy <laughs> whose metabolism has changed, it would be so awesome if somebody was like, okay, I need you to not exercise for a week, two weeks, and eat a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so awesome. It would be awesome for me right now, too. Yeah. But well, Actually, I kind of can eat a lot because I'm pregnant, so that's great. Um, but anyway. Okay, so we get through that kind of yeah. stuff, and you get eating again. Yeah, but somewhere again, I don't... I, this timeline is very foggy during this period. But I basically... God really led me to himself during that time. And I was in my... Um, I was just very depressed and isolated um, through all of this. And so I was in my room just, like, crying, like, sobbing. <laughs> like kind of like everything's falling apart this is not working I don't know what I thought I could control like I'm having this conversation like to myself but then I just I say like I remember my mom like peeked her head in my room and then just like looked at me and then like shut the door <laughs> like left because you were talking out loud no because I was sobbing just oh. like laying on my floor like sobbing oh. and she's just like I don't know what to do with her anymore is <laughs> how I understood that Mm-hmm. So anyway, and then I'm like just praying. I ended up praying to God and just said, just as a parent, <laughs> to try to maybe help you understand what your mom might have been feeling. Once you opened the door and shut, and you were like, you thought she felt like I don't know what to do anymore. What she was probably feeling was, I don't know what to do anymore. I, as a parent, like sometimes you really have those feelings. Yeah, you really wish you knew what to do, and you really just don't. That's what her face said. Yeah. And that may not be in her case, but right. I've had that feeling with my own children already, yeah. And I don't blame her. I mean, I had an eating disorder. I was having, like, a breakdown. I don't know. So I don't blame her. I wouldn't know what to do. So, anyway, but I cried out to God in that time because I didn't felt like I didn't know what to do, and nothing was working, and I loved swimming, and I, all these things that I loved doing, I couldn't do, 
And, but I didn't really want to be in the situation I was in. And not even because I just couldn't do those things. I didn't have friends. <laughs> so I was, um, I just said, God, like, I don't know what to do. And he said, or I, this is one of the most, I don't know, like how God speaks through two different people. But um, there's a very strong impression and thought in my mind that was like, you don't need to do anything. You're not supposed to be in control. I'm in control. So I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> and I just remember feeling a lot of peace. And um, it wasn't like I was instantly cured at that moment. But after that, I started reading my Bible. And shortly after that, I found the verse, John 16, 33, which says that in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's Jesus speaking. And so I just like talked to God all day. I had no friends. I just prayed all the time, and I don't mean that to sound super religious, but like mm-hmm. you I didn't was, have anything better to do. Yeah, I it was so great. I just, um, I mean, I had a lot of repair to happen, but um, yeah, I just remember being really close with God. Yeah, and time. so I've heard a version of this a thousand times. A God getting somebody out allegorically, mm-hmm. the people call this the wilderness, mm-hmm. right? Getting them away from whatever influences were mm-hmm. clouding their judgment away from other things that were satisfying mm-hmm. them partially yes. yeah and into a place of brokenness but into also a place of like silence mm-hmm. and non-luxury mm-hmm. so that there's in like for some reason the human soul can listen there mm-hmm. can hear and people still do this literally right when mm-hmm. people are trying to figure out what the heck is going on yeah there's a lot of people that like they'll like go out to the country or go mm-hmm. hiking or go camping because they just need less noise. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a, and this is also a classic, what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. Mm-hmm. Because Satan yeah. intended for evil. All the isolation that had happened in your life was a demonic plan for your destruction. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that, Christianly speaking, right? Mm-hmm. And that all of these things, the eating disorders, the the implicit judgment of your parents' divorce, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff, ultimately made it so you didn't feel like you could open... We talked about this in the other yeah. podcast. Felt like you, you had a really hard time opening up to people. And mm-hmm. because you didn't open up to people, it was hard to build friendships. Because it was hard to build friendships, you didn't have friends. Because you didn't have friends, you felt alone and, and mm-hmm. right. And yet that ultimately was able to create the mm-hmm. isolation necessary for you to actually turn mm-hmm. to the only one that could help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was... it was a, And I just remember... I never went through, like, some. there's some um, eating disorder. There's some, like, uh, therapy uh, centers and stuff for eating disorders. And I never went to one of those. I really just remember after that point, and I'm not saying that you should not go to those. If you need one of those, right. you should go. Right. But for whatever reason, for me, again, no one had told me I was anorexic. But I just remember, like, little things, like, uh, like just praying and being like, I, I can eat that. Why can't I eat that? Just like little freedoms that I felt mm-hmm. like God, um, for whatever reason, revealed to me, um, very specifically to that, like to physical healing. So, um, yeah, and a lot of counselors would totally agree with this. Mm-hmm. They would say, "Look, the, our whole job is to try to help you see that stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> and if and if God can show you those things, that's great. Mm-hmm. Because all we're trying to do in counseling is to help you yeah. see what's holding you up and trying to get that mm-hmm. little breakthrough of like, wait a second." I can eat this, I can do this, I can mm-hmm. believe this, I can trust this, I can... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then to, like, begin a process of doing it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, so there was, I mean, it was maybe a year or so of that, and 
um, I started going, because then my priorities were rearranged, I remember before I had missed youth group all through high school because, or the first couple years of high school because swim team was on Wednesday nights and I would, that was what my priority was. So I ended up going, starting to go to youth group again, like my junior year of high school and just like making friends and. So and just, this church you went to, this is a pretty good church, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, like, uh, all churches are imperfect. All mm-hmm. people have issues. It's a good church. But this is a church. They believe in Jesus. They want to help people grow in their faith and mm-hmm. stuff, right? Yep. They, it's a lot like our church, very biblically based. Um, it's a non-denominational church in the Baptist tradition, that sort of thing. It's Sweet. very similar. So this year you got, <coughs> you believed, you got baptized? Yes. So that summer I got baptized and yeah, just started rebuilding friendships um, in youth group, things like that. And um, it was just a lot of growth. Cool. And so then during these high school years, you actually met Tim, who, spoiler alert, right, ultimately becomes your husband. Yes. <laughs> and um, so that, so like you met him in high school. Mm-hmm. Was he a Christian? Yes. So he, um, he, Became a Christian. I mean, he, so we actually went to the same church since we were both four years old. Okay. So I always knew of Tim Reese. I always knew who he was. Um, my, our parents were in the, like, Bible study together, their friends, things like that. Uh, so romantic. Yeah. So, um, but what happened was I started going to youth group again and just meet, meeting friends. And um, it wasn't actually until the next year that we were in class together for the first time because Tim is extremely smart and was always in all the AP classes and I was not. Um, <laughs> and then uh, we also went to different schools le- leading up to high school. So we just didn't really cross paths cross paths that often. Um, and we had different friend groups and stuff. So our senior year, we were in a Spanish class together that only had like five people in it. And then, um, yeah, we were we just got to know each other better in large group settings and yeah. things like that. And then we both went to UW-Madison, and we had decided, like, we had picked colleges, I think, before before we were friends. Um, and so it was kind of like, oh, Tim's going to UW too. Cool. So we both went to UW-Madison, both started the NAVs, and we were just in the same place at the same time. <laughs> A lot, I guess. Yeah, he probably <laughs> engineered that. Well, I liked him starting senior year. I don't, and so he liked me. We didn't date though for another, another like two or three years. So. Two or three years. Two, two years, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unrequited love is so romantic. Okay, so, <laughs> so you make it through like eighteen, graduate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you need to say about that? Not really. Okay. Yeah. So then you go to NAVS. Mm-hmm. You're a UW student. Mm-hmm. Tim declares his his. Like, <laughs> Unrequited love, you say me too, and you start dating him. Yeah, so we, yes, so, so we start dating. Um, and that goes perfectly, never any problems. It was actually, I think you're being sarcastic, but yes. it was very rough, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, what had happened kind of between, high, like my first year of college, I, well, I was still coming out of the eating disorder, and I had gained some weight, but it, I wasn't overweight, but... Um, that was one of the first times where I felt like you had mentioned the mirror thing. Like, did you look at the mirror and feel overweight? Mm-hmm. And coming out of the eating story, that was harder for me because I knew convictionally I need to be healthy mm-hmm. and eat three meals a day and eat when I'm hungry. But I felt very insecure about how I looked. And then, um, yeah, so I was just, I was 
very insecure. Even though I was coming out of this like intense growth period spiritually, I started again feeling very insecure. And and also just this is really where the be this is so Tim is the first person I dated ever. Um, You've got a really good track record for selecting men. <laughs> so you're one for one. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel very fortunate about that. But um, I well, a lot of it was I didn't. I was very afraid of being in a relationship with anyone for a long time. But um, this, it, my fear of like broken relationships and abandonment and all this stuff, just like during this time. So that's why dating was really hard <laughs> because I was super insecure about myself and about our relationship. Like. Should we be doing this? Is it going to last? Do you like that person um, instead of me? And if you're the other person in that relationship <laughs> yeah. and you don't feel that, it's so befuddling what is happening. Mm-hmm. You're kind of like, I feel like I'm expressing interest. Yeah. Why don't you believe me? And it can yeah. be really offensive because it's kind of like you feel like you're a perfectly believable person and they will not believe you. And if you know Tim, he's the most steady, right? rational, yep. believable person like in the world, probably. And yeah. so God put me with that person, and I was still freaking out. Yeah, because so. <laughs> like, this is an enormous blessing. Yeah. Because a lot of people who kind of go through what you went through, they become insufferable loser magnets. Where they, like, the way they deal with it is they will, they will, they will wrap their arms around anybody who gives them attention and just assume everything's going to fall apart in mm-hmm. drama. But it doesn't stop them from entering the drama of relationship because mm-hmm. they want to feel something. Mm-hmm. And so you actually, this is, you're, you, this turned out, you turned out so well, Jill. So <laughs> God's providence again. Yeah. I think in your other, in your, the other podcast, you also talked about that. Oh, this actually was true of most of your relationships mm-hmm. that in all your girlfriend relationships too, that like you just didn't share much mm-hmm. and you didn't open up much. You were actually a pretty good friend to them, but then when they wanted to be friends back, like they would kind of hit this mm-hmm. invisible wall and they didn't really know why it was there because you were cheerful and a good student and had everything together and so on. Yeah, I think I was very afraid of being loved. Like, I didn't know. Because I think to me it was that could just go away. Like, I'd rather, it was almost like I'd rather just not have that because I don't want the crushing experience of, like, I, I was wrong about that. It wasn't actually what I thought it was or they don't really like me. I don't know. So it was something like that. So that was really hard in dating, but um, we dated a year, and through that, I really saw gospel love from Tim. Like, he was just always so, um, he never, like, fed, he never, um, what's the right word? Not fed my insecurities. He never gave in to, like, he didn't flatter your insecurities. He didn't flatter my insecurities. Yeah, that's a good word. He, he wasn't like... He was oh, like, oh, you're insecure, but I love you so yeah. much. I love you. I promise, I promise, yeah. I promise. He, just, he was just like, I told you I care about you. Here I am. Mm-hmm. You have to learn to believe me. Yes. Yeah. And he was very... Very um, wise for his age. Truth-telling. Good and heavens. Yeah. So, and he just... I mean, but he showed up. He was always there for me, but he would never... Like, he would tell me what I needed to hear, mm-hmm. not what I wanted to hear. Uh, which kindly, was, I'm sure. Kindly, yes, very kindly. And um, and just showed me, like, he was very interested. He actually helped me th- realize a lot of things because uh, he was just so curious about me because he loved me, I guess, or something. Mm-hmm. But he would ask me lots of questions, like, what was it like? No, having- that was exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I was being yeah, sarcastic. He loves you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but he would, like, he would ask me what it's like to go to two parents' houses for Christmas and, like, mm-hmm. and... 
I, it just allowed me to really like process and he was very compassionate and yeah. Anyway. So, okay, so say a couple words about how that is what romance really is and not all the other flighty little idiotic things young women often think it is. That Tim is the most romantic person you've ever met, and that is and what why? romance is. Okay. Yeah, like like if let's say there's a 22 or a 19 year old college mm-hmm. student listening to this who loves Jesus, and she wants some man to to like she wants to find love, mm-hmm. but in her head maybe she doesn't think this mm-hmm. way. Like, what would you tell somebody mm-hmm. like that? I think that well, I think I was that kind of in that. Sp- in that place. I had a lot, going into our relationship, I had a lot of things that I wanted, I expected him to make me happy about. Or I was like, this is what a guy looks like, like should be like in a relationship. Mm-hmm. But through that, um, I just, I found how much I would, it really revealed a lot of my sinfulness and, and things that I wasn't working on because what I was met with was someone who, it's almost like, when you put expectations and bounds on what, how someone should love you, you actually don't feel loved when they do those things because it feels very contrived, or it is contrived. And so I found that Tim, just he doesn't care at all what other people think. So he wasn't going to do what I told him to do. But he did love me in ways that were very him. And so it was like, wow, like he, that came all out of him, not out of what I wanted or what culture says they should do or um so it was little things like he would write me encouraging notes which i guess i mean that's kind of a normal thing but um no it isn't no most people don't do that okay never mind (laughs) i forget what i said but yeah he would write me that's uh, very sweet very encouraging notes and like put them in my backpack and i'd find that yeah that's extraordinarily uncommon okay so Um, cherish this man yeah okay because i mean this is part of the conundrum that younger women find themselves Mm -hmm. in because on one level um what what t- t- you're describing, Tim demonstrating, is very similar to what Jesus, t- what Paul talks about, mm-hmm. the, what how this works in Christ in Ephesians five, where he says basically that husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the mm-hmm. church, right? And a lot of people go, well, just they just they stop there. They go, well, it's you're, you know Jesus died for the church, so mentioned later, right? Mm-hmm. Which is true, but it goes on. He Paul says. Um, by washing her with the water and the word mm-hmm. to prepare her as a bride's palace, right? Mm-hmm. And so what, what Paul actually says is that Jesus died for the church to make her godly. Mm-hmm. And he, what Paul is saying is that's what husbands are for. Mm-hmm. To lay down their lives for their wives, not to make them happy mm-hmm. or to do what they want or to be their little romantic whatever, mm-hmm. but to make them godly. Now, the, the, that can get poisonous where... There's some women, they almost think they want to thrive with men telling them how to be, mm-hmm. which actually isn't the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so some women are either caught up in being drawn to a man that's like in control, telling them how to be, who's kind of controlling, mm-hmm. which they find very unattractive six months to nine years yeah. later. Or you've got the man who just is the appeaser, who's just like, mm-hmm. oh, sweetie, I want you to feel great. I want to make you happy, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. There's not a lot of men that really understand what it means to be a Christ-like man who will do anything for your godliness, for your mm-hmm. real growth, but bringing out the real you. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? They mm-hmm. either want to form you in their image mm-hmm. to be the kind of person who will serve them the way they want to be served, right? Or they want to flatter you so you'll be around so they can enjoy mm-hmm. and extract from your beauty and presence and love. Mm-hmm. It's the, But a Christ-like man is is not going to flatter your insecurities or flatter you at all. Mm-hmm. 
and yet lay down his life so that you can be you, but the you you are meant to be that is godly without controlling mm-hmm. who you become. Mm-hmm. And and what I find is is that younger women oftentimes have a very difficult time discerning the difference mm-hmm. between the flatterer and the controller and the person who really wants to bring out the true them. Mm-hmm. And you, the only thing you can really tell them is the person who always acts for your true good mm-hmm. is the one who loves you. Mm-hmm. But then you've got to know something about true good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of that, I mean, that came out for me was I saw how he what kind of friend he was, I saw. So it was really observation of, the, I knew him pretty well because we had always been in the same place, apparently. But, yeah. um, so a lot of it was just observing, like, his life and how he was different than other people. A big thing for me was that he didn't care. It's very apparent that he didn't care what other people thought, not in a flippant way. Mm-hmm. Like, he's very, uh, he wants to love people well and cares what they think in that sense. But... I- He's not going to just do what everyone else is doing. And anyway, so yeah. I know he wasn't an appeaser. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you and I are really good at long podcasts. Yeah, we are. So um, so let's fast forward a little bit through yeah. these formative 20s relationships. Mm-hmm. So from about 20 years old to 23 or 24, mm-hmm. you, had, you actually were able to form a number of solid, lasting relationships, mm-hmm. right? And those began to change like your understanding of like no trust Mm -hmm. i have even if these relationships don't last i have to trust people Mm -hmm. yeah uh and i that started i mean i started with tim i think and then um there was in in college i lived i met hillary she's one of my best friends and through the navigators um and she is that the hillary goes at high point yeah she does shout out to hillary uh she asked me to be her roommate uh, our jun- my junior year, her sophomore year, and I didn't know her very well uh, before that. But um, she just taught me a lot about friendship during that time. I was not, I was very insecure, but she was just very loving of who I was, and um, I don't know. I just learned so much from her about friendship. And then um, coming out of college, or getting married um, and coming out of college, we, I got married when I was in college still, so was, we were both 21. Um, but yeah, I just grew a lot in relationships. Um, and I started mentoring a girl and we became really close friends. Her name's Kate. Um, but I learned uh, what I saw in all these friendships with someone and, and with Tim also was someone like you kind of mentioned someone who was willing to let me be myself, but also they wanted to see me become the self that God had envisioned me to be (laughs) so there I went through a lot of personal change during this time I realized a lot of my gifts and things that I love doing and I changed a ton from who I thought I was myself even into um, just was changing all the time and discovering things and these friends were always like yes that's you that's more of who you are and I can totally see that and so Mm -hmm. that's what I really found in these relationships versus like um, I found that a lot in your life that you are really responsive when people call things out of you. They're like, "Chill, mm-hmm. you can do this." Chill, and you're like, "Yeah, I can." <laughs> God helps me, but you still have this like gracious striving about you, where you're like, "If God helps me, mm-hmm. I can win this battle. Mm-hmm. I can do this." And I, I can see that that like you're try you try stuff, but you never lose sight of grace. 
mm-hmm. which is a good understanding of the gospel. <laughs> and I think throughout the those la- the last couple of years, so I've been out of college for like five years now. Um, but over that time, I've really seen God like push me into like new arenas where like I kind of am like, okay, I tackle some insecurities. I like grow in my gifts, but it's like in this very small environment and like we're around a few people. And then like I kind of get shoved into this new arena where it's like, okay, there's more, there's more of a crowd now. <laughs> like mm-hmm. not like watching me necessarily. It's, this is all metaphorical, but it's, um, it's always to kill more insecurity and uh, work more for Christ. And so I've really, see, and I've seen that coming into High, at High Point Church um, right. working here and it's, and I've, in all of those cases, experienced more and more people who I've just experienced more gospel love from the people right. I'm around, which is really cool. Yeah. So how would you summarize age 22 to the present? Like mm-hmm. you worked here for a good bit of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of got out of, came out of college. You were doing some photography. Your undergrad was in psychology. Mm-hmm. I was a nanny for two and a half years. You were a nanny, mm-hmm. yeah. And then uh, we hired you here with mm-hmm. very little experience. Yep. Right. <laughs> and you've been kicking butt for two and a half years. Just two years. Two and, years. Yeah, in yeah. June. Yeah, and then you're planning on having a child. You yep. should be by this point, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, right? but it's happening, whether yes. or not. I, in seven yeah. weeks. Yeah, right? seven weeks ish. Mm-hmm. So like. Um, So there's a couple ways to kind of bring this home, right? Mm -hmm. One is your life, even though you're not very old, right? You're still in your middle Mm -hmm. 20s, right? Um, Growth takes time. Mm -hmm. Like you've experienced real wounds. Um, Some of those utterly other-inflicted. Some of those you you participated in. Some were totally Mm -hmm. self-inflicted. Some wounds were wounds that you didn't cause, but you still held to yourself Mm -hmm. and allowed them to fester. And then Christ enters in, right? And some things change immediately. Mm-hmm. Some things change soon. And in some ways, you have the same issues. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of other ways, they're real different now, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're, working on, you're working on the third set of insecurities, and you've really knocked mm-hmm. down a couple, of, you know, a couple sets of them. And, like, mm-hmm. you've grown a lot, and yet you've, it's very evident to you. Like you mm-hmm. keep opening new doors, and it's like every time you get in the hallway and you open the door, there's another hallway. Mm-hmm. How do you how how do you deal with that in your life? That like you're not done growing, mm-hmm. you made progress, but how you don't know how far into the race you are. How do how do people believe in Jesus who have real feel like they've got real issues? Not get discouraged at the persistence of those issues, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think. It comes back to, um, C.S. Lewis has a quote that I'm not going to quote exactly because I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's about how um, when you're in Christ, you become your truest self. It's something about personality, but like he basically draws out your actual personality mm-hmm. and who you really are. And I don't remember where it's from, but I know C.S. Lewis. It's the said. end of mere Christianity. Thank you. One of the best examples. <laughs> yeah, it's about cabbage. Yeah. And he says, he says, um, you put salt on cabbage, not so that cabbage will taste like salt, 
but so that the salt, what the salt does chemically is it brings out the taste of the cabbage. Mm -hmm. And so by putting salt on the cabbage, you can taste the cabbage. Mm -hmm. And he says, Jesus is like, he's another example, I think, with like the sun and an illumination that like through the sun, you can see what something really mm -hmm. is. But he says salt, Jesus is like salt in that sense that like he puts his salt on you and you, you become more of the taste mm -hmm. of yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so I think it comes down to seeing God's vision um, of godliness, but then how it relates, just asking God about to open that up in yourself. So, I mean, that comes out in relationships, but um, there's been times where I've not wanted to change or wanted to grow because, I don't know, I feel comfortable where I am or whatever. And but then um, it's always very stagnant and it's worse. <laughs> and there's bitter. It's just not good. So um, being open to like letting God change you, but then knowing like it's a lot of trust of knowing that it's going to be this really cool thing when it happens. It's scary maybe because you don't know what it's going to look like. Um, but there was this one very pivotal moment for me in college when I lived at the Foe's house, which is a YWAM house. They had a prophetic prayer night, and I was very afraid going in because I thought they were going to, like, read my mind or so. I don't know what was, what was going to happen. I did not come from a charismatic background, so I was like, what's this going to be like? But it, I just experienced God's gentleness in it and his vision for me. And I was, like, clinically depressed at this point, but they were, like, they were praying about how I was, my joy was my strength and, like, all these things that when I heard them, I was like, that is who I am. And, like, I know that. That's, like, in me. And so it, it's been coming back to that a lot for me. And knowing that, like, going through intense periods of insecurity, saying, this isn't God's vision for me, but he, he makes, he wants me to be that person. So he's going to make it happen. And so I just need to walk with him in that. Um, the story that comes to mind from the Bible is Peter walking on water. And it can be easy to want to just cling on the boat because you're safe there, and um, it seems sturdier than waves to walk on. But mm -hmm. um, when you're just looking at Jesus, you can walk on water, which is pretty sweet. So it's yeah. it's um, it's allowing God. To, it's just saying keeping your eyes on Jesus and allowing God to do maybe like things that you didn't think you could do, or things that you're not sure. Like, is this for me? But when He calls you into them, just walking. <laughs> with him in that um so I don't know if that answers the question but a lot of it is what is God's vision for me and but you're not going to really figure that out you kind of have to pray for him to reveal that to you and lead you into opportunities and say yes to those things and yeah and like stay in the game like reading the mm -hmm. bible studying yes reading the bible yeah people having mentors mm -hmm hearing God's word preached mm -hmm. at church, worshiping mm -hmm. God together with people, right? I think one of the things people should learn from you is that it is true that when you have very specific wounds, oftentimes there are these watershed events of healing just mm -hmm. as there's these watershed events of harming that mm -hmm. happen. But if you wait around for them, they don't work. No, yeah, you have to keep you have to keep right. going towards. And yeah. so, as you do all the habits of grace to try to grow, oftentimes you'll you may feel like you're not getting anywhere, mm -hmm. but actually God is putting in place all these pieces, and then when the watershed events happens, they're all there. Mm -hmm. 
and then it all kind of falls into place all at once. And you think, oh, look, I grew because of this event, mm-hmm. which is kind of true, but also very false. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest mistakes I find people make as a pastor is they only really focus on spiritual growth in crisis. Mm-hmm. And crisis actually is an important part of how people grow spiritually. But crisis goes really well together with concerted attempts at growth and learning and growing in wisdom and those sorts of things. And so when those moments happen, they they kind of meld together and they produce something great. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen this in you over and over again where like you, you're memorizing Bible verses, you're writing them on your chalkboard, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're printing them out, you're thinking things through, you're offering, you're asking for people to pray for you. Over and over and over again, mm-hmm. you're doing these little things where you're just trying to take a step forward. Mm-hmm. And then these watersheds come into your life. Like when you got pregnant and you were like af- afraid of death. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and But all this stuff kind of came rushing in and you're like, no, I am this person. God mm-hmm. gives life. He blesses. Mm-hmm. I, I know that I, right. And all that stuff was all ready to rush in. And when people spoke it, spoke that kind of stuff to you, it lifted other things up. And I think that that's really critical for people to realize that. Mm-hmm. Staying in the game, knowing that some things won't shake loose until these watershed events happen and you can't plan them, and that's really up to God and his providence. But engaging in these habits of grace that navigators Mm -hmm. taught you as well as other Mm -hmm. things, right? So that when things happen, the Holy Spirit has put all these things in you that's ready to flow. Mm -hmm. And I think that when people do that, they experience what you've experienced. It's it's herky-jerky growth. It's like delivering a baby. It's two steps forward, one Mm -hmm. one step back. But if you take two, two steps forward and one step back, eventually you've taken a thousand mm-hmm. steps. And um, I think that that allows you to then look at, for all that you still have to gain, you could still look at all that you have gained. Mm-hmm. And if you have encouraging friends, and if you can hear the gospel, you can rejoice in all the, because all that gain is evidence of God's grace. Mm-hmm. And the, if you believe God is faithful, the God that's walked with you this far is the God that will walk with you the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I think it comes down to God's character. And I mean, if you think about the walking on water story, Jesus is there the whole time. And even when Peter looks at the waves and he just calls out and says, Lord, save me, because he starts sinking. And mm-hmm. But Jesus, is, it says immediately he was right. there. And so knowing God's character and his goodness and his presence is like, yeah, what you said. Comes yeah, to. and mm-hmm. relevant, I think relevant in that story that. Jesus, if Jesus wanted to teach Peter about walking on water, he totally could have done it on a calm day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Instead, he did it on a on a high wave, yeah. stormy night. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you. I'll just tell you as a diver, there is very little as scary as sinking into water in the darkness. Mm-hmm. It must have been terrifying, mm-hmm. right? And so Jesus chose to teach Peter that lesson in the dark, in the waves, in the wind. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, he was immediately with him, and he mm-hmm. called him out, and he did all these things. And God just works that way. And if mm-hmm. you can accept that about God's character, that God will intentionally mess with you with waves and wind and stuff like that, and yet is immediately there when you mm-hmm. turn to him and call on him for help, you could get a sense of how God is leading you from one season mm-hmm. to the next, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have we have filled the hour. And so... Um, you guys will probably hear from Jill in the future. I should say this before we close, that when Jill has her baby, she's going to go part-time. And so she can't do her job part-time. So she's going to be switching to become my assistant because Hannah is going to a large Asian country to teach English and to minister and serve people there. 
And so that position is going to be open. So Jill's going to be my assistant. And we just hired John, what's John's last name? Sakatowski. John Sakatowski to be Jill's replacement. So mm-hmm. she is going to be training him in earnest. So he's going to be sort of like your intern for like six weeks. <laughs> and then he'll be doing that job yep. full time. So we're really excited that John's come on staff and that we get to keep Jill. We're just sad that Hannah's leaving. Yes. All right. Well, we'll see you guys soon. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Okay.